Hi, everyone. This is episode 37 of the Get In My Garden podcast. This is Aaron Moskowitz, and today we have a very special guest, Steve Raisner of the Growing With Fishes podcast and the Potent Ponics YouTube station. He's an extremely knowledgeable guy and the type of person who is always gaining more knowledge and evolving his practices based on what he learns. He is a legitimate scientist and researcher. We discuss dual root zone planting for cannabis, for greater terpene production and terpene variety, and also much faster and stronger plant growth. The benefits are huge, and he talks about how aquaponics maximizes the natural capacity of the cannabis plant. Steve gives a side-by-side comparison of soil versus aquaponics growing to understand costs and the differences. He mentions what NASA research has discovered about aquaponics and microbial life and the aquatic food web versus the terrestrial food web. Towards the end of our discussion, we discuss what's going on in the world of GMO and how some labs are creating cannabinoids for mass market without the cannabis plant and some of the downfalls of this. Enjoy this information-packed episode and check out Steve's work also. And please subscribe to the podcast and leave positive reviews on iTunes if you like the show, and you can now endorse us on WhatPod. I'm super grateful for all the people who have reached out with ideas and feedback. Thank you. I originally got started when I was 12 years old working in an aquarium store, and we did a lot of uh, what they called river tank in my teenage years, which is basically uh, recirculating reptile tanks that have fish and plants, and it helps make the reptiles, A, makes the water cleaner, but two, makes the tanks not smell so much. Ended up working in a couple different places doing high-end aquarium design and all kinds of other things. And then uh, in my uh, 20s, I ended up working in a big nursery running, you know, working with, you know, much larger scale um, greenhouses and things like that and, you know, kind of uh, how to deal with larger scale IPM and, you know, fertigation and that kind of stuff. Um, and then aside from that, I, my grandparents had a two acre um, farm in North Philly. They did all kinds of organic gardening. You know, they did all kinds of stuff that would be now considered similar to no-till gardening or making your own pesticides, you know, for steeping uh, nightshade leaves and making pesticides for Japanese beetles that way. So cool. Taking willow cuttings and making cloning gel for the peppers and the, and the berries so we can make, you know, larger patches and, you know, just all this, all these kinds of things. So that's kind of what I grew up doing. And then, you know, my teenage years also discovered cannabis and started growing and uh, ended up work, you know, one, one thing led to another, ended up in Colorado in uh, 2010 and I uh, worked out there with the cannabis industry and then a little bit in uh some aquatic stuff out here as well and then worked after the floods happened ended up getting a job at the um, aquaponics source and did a lot of research and development for them on products Um, they had a research lab we could run all kinds of experiments Uh, myself and one of the other employees there named a guy named rob ended up doing building a couple of greenhouses on his property and doing a whole bunch of r d and a 50 by 30 by 18 foot greenhouses Got to do all kinds of experiments, you know, test all different kinds of ideas and, and test yields and all kinds of things without having to deal with a whole bunch of stuff just under medical license. So that was, you know, really awesome to try and do a lot of trial and error and figure out exactly how to grow cannabis and aquaponics. Wow. Do what not to do. And then, you know, had some friends that we could uh, slip some tissue samples to at some of the local colleges. They were doing tissue samples for us after hours so that we could actually tell what the nut- nutrition was going on in the in the systems. So this way we actually had, you know, hard data on, you know, the nutrient values on the leaves for aquaponics in cannabis long before, you know, anyone else was doing it. Um, to this day, you know, some of the best data, I think, in my opinion, that's still out, you know, still been done on it. 
uh, really helped give us give me a you know edge on on how to do this whole thing. And then they uh, aquaponics source changed owners weren't interested in working with cannabis anymore. I ended up taking uh, making my own company called Potent Ponics, working all over the place. I spent some time doing some projects in Jamaica. Did some work for uh, consulting work for Green Relief Incorporated up in Canada. It's currently the largest aquaponic cannabis grow, and uh, all different kinds of people. And then worked in a couple of other smaller projects here and there. And then now working on a with a whole bunch of people uh, over in Oklahoma. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I didn't realize the scope of it. So with aquaponics, I mean, for people who are just listening, I did have uh, one episode of aquaponics a long time ago, but can you just do a really quick overview of what it is and then uh, why people are using it versus hydroponics or other farming methods? Absolutely. So with aquaponics, we're using fish or other aquatic um, creatures to provide the uh, primary nutrient source, the primary nutrient input for what is essentially aquatic soil. You know, uh, the aquatic food web is very similar to the soil food web. If you're familiar with Elaine Ingham's soil yes. food web, it's, it's almost identical in an aquatic environment. It's just one's in soil and one's in water. Um, but if you actually look at the total number of species diversity, um, it's actually over 160% more diverse in terms of number of different species uh, on average in, in an aquaponic system compared to an average soil system. So, uh, And that's NASA-based study that actually those numbers are coming from. That's not just me pulling it out. That actually is from a NASA-based study where they're looking at uh, what are the essential microbes we need to bring from, you know, the soil and for an aquatic environment if we're going to go off, off, you know, either into a space station more permanently or onto, you know, Mars or elsewhere. And it was really interesting because they're trying to figure out, okay, what's the secret sauce? What, what are the key microbes? And what they found was is that in, a, in aquatic environments and even to a lesser extent in the terrestrial environments as well, you know, these things and these food webs have co-evolved so many different times after different catastrophes or different isolated populations, and they've all balanced out in their own ways. So there isn't really a single key set of microbes that'll work universally or, you know, key set of microbes that, you know, are going to be found in every single place on the planet, you know, but we're going to have to think about that kind of stuff when we're going to try and do agriculture off world. But um, to get back to your point is, is that basically the, we break down aquatic animals, uh, waste streams into nutrients for the plants. And then we supplement a small amount of things like iron uh, and balance the pH and occasionally adjust micronutrients just to, you know, with mostly you know organic inputs, seaweeds, uh, ferments, um, sometimes some some natural mineral salts like calcium, you know, calcium carbonate. Or the only one that I guess that wouldn't be would be the iron source, but that would be the uh, I guess biggest difference. Um, but with it, aquaponics, you can grow much much faster. Uh huh. Um, you know, we're seeing growth rates you know, almost double most soils, you know, easily. Um, when it's fully tuned in, we can get much past that. And when we do aquaponics with cannabis, we do something called dual root zone planting, where we put the plants in pots, the bottom half is flood and drain. Oh. And then we separate that with a layer of burlap, and we put a layer of soil on top. And this allows us to have the terrestrial microbiome and all the wonderful things. I'm sure you've had other speakers and guests on talk about the, all the different benefits of really great soil and compost. You can, yeah. you can get all those benefits in that upper soil zone and then have that you know flood and drain layer below. And as long as you're not flooding and draining to the point where you're touching that soil layer, you're going to get two complete layers of control. So now I've doubled the microbiomes of the soil, uh, of the root zones of the, of the plants. And, and what does that do? Well, 
Um, by increasing the biodiversity of the root systems of the plants, the plants actually make a, a much larger expression of terpenes in particular. Wow. Because they're exposed to more different microbes. Terpenes generally are immune system responses, you know, defense mechanisms. So exposing them to more different types of microbes that aren't necessarily pathogenic is going to give them, you know, further increase the gene, the gene expression on those terpenes. So when you do that, what is a cannabinoid? You know, a cannabinoid is a terpene plus a phenol. So now we're increasing the terpenes and we're increasing the cannabinoids simply by just splitting up the root zone into two, you know, heavily biological zones. One's an aquatic microbiome, one's a terrestrial microbiome, but each of them is providing, you know, these wide ranges of different microbes that are available to the plant roots, you know, stimulating its immune system, creating more terpenes and making for a, a faster growing and, you know, more potent plant. Wow, that is so amazing because... I think most people, I mean, they don't even realize all those details. Uh, maybe they're going off of flavor and they're impressed by visible signs of resin or whatnot if they're just going to a store. But is the flavor affected right away? Oh, yeah. you can, It's a much cleaner, smoother flavor because um, we're running much lower nutrient levels. Again, because we have you know all that huge diversity with the with the microbes we can run very very low nutrient levels so it makes for very clean tasting cannabis and again with the increased terpenes makes for much more flavor with it yeah it's, it's really uh really wonderful stuff and uh, i really think is going to be the way of the future not to mention you know we're saving we use about 18 percent of the water compared to a traditional drained away soil grow yeah that's a big deal when you're in the weather or in the desert like in new mexico and so you went out to colorado is that because the cannabis industry was really getting uh, started over there because at that point it was not legalized, right? And it's become a completely different animal since then. Well, when I was uh, first moved out here, there was medical. And okay. I, I moved out here and back in the early days, you used to be able to grow and sell to dispensaries still, kind of like Cali used to be. Yeah. And Washington used to be once upon a time. So that was an option. So I had a friend of mine that had an extra room and I was like, cool, well, I had just finished up, you know, uh, going through some stuff in Philly and was looking kind of for a change in direction. So ended up moving out there and uh, uh, it was a really, really awesome gig. So it was growing for quite a, quite a while and, you know, got a chance to get more familiar with some of the West Coast strains and learn some of the different techniques that you guys do out on the West Coast, you know, play with a little bit more outdoor stuff than I had played with before on the East Coast just because of uh, security and how densely packed everyone is on the East Coast it makes it a little harder to grow. I see. And Colorado is a very sunny state too, compared to. Oh yeah. Yeah. Much sunnier. Although there's some areas in the, in the, you know, greater Philadelphia area that are pretty sunny for the most part, it does get cloudy much more often for sure. And a lot more humid, a lot more rain, a lot more things you have to deal with growing outside. That's why most of the girls were indoor. With aquaponics. I really love the idea that it's the future. I mean, it seems like if NASA's researching it, they're going to be doing something. I mean, I don't know if fish will be going into outer space or not, but Maybe so. It seems like that would be a good good idea. But can you speak to the like the yields? So everybody was pushing for higher and higher yields, and there are people who don't care about necessarily the flavor. Even I mean, they may be just they're just trying to get the highest yield so they can process that resin off, right? For sure. So what what is the capacity of the plant? So on average, we end up with plants, you know, again, soil controls and the same growth, you know, the same growth cycle. You end up around 15 to 20% more uh, in yield on average. And that isn't so much that the plant is producing more buds per node site. It's the fact that our veg grows so much faster 
that the plant structure is much larger. So you have a larger plant coming into flower with the aquaponics oh. in a shorter period of time. So, so it's, you know, at, compared to, you know, flower to flower, you're going to get similar yields, maybe slightly higher yields than most strains, you know, five to 12%, like pretty net, you know, pretty negligible. But when you're talking about, um, you know, actually uh, base structure, when you're coming in and getting three to six inches of growth per day in veg every single day, it doesn't take very long to make a monster plant. And do you think that the people, I mean, there's a lot of technology and maybe genetically modifying and things like that, that will probably continue to happen. Uh, do you think that it's going to compete with that? Or do you think that there will just be a complete divide? Those who want something that's natural and healthy, and hopefully you know, people will want something flavorful or something that genetically modified and put to, I mean, at this point, it's cheaper to do aquaponics. Isn't that right? Yeah. So, so I'm glad you brought that up. So, okay. So let's compare a hundred, hundred by 30 bay of soil and 130 by with aquaponics, uh, 100, 100 by 30. So uh, the 100 by 30 with the soil guy, he's for to grow year round in a in a colder climate. Um, he's going to have to go ahead and put in um, some geothermal and um, possibly some some heat you know heat lines for his beds. But he's going to have to burn a lot of propane on that to keep that warm, and he's going to. Um, you know, still have to heat the air quite a bit. It's not going to really heat the air much, you know, by heating the soil um, in, in that regard. So you don't have that thermal mass the same kind of way that you do with water. Whereas in an aquaponic setup, uh, and you're going to lose all the water, you know, to the ground table. So you're, once you, you water the water, you know, stuff through, not to mention you might contaminate the soil to the point with your nutrients where you're going to have to go, you know, potentially get fined or, or whatever else. It's a liability. So, Depending on what you're using, obviously you're using good practices, you know, it's not a problem, but it's once in a while they get pretty stickler about some of this stuff. So in an aquaponic system, we're entirely closed, closed off. Oh, and it takes four years if you want to be organically certified if that property wasn't already organic. That's a great point. With aquaponics, we can set up and be organic certified within year one. We can, by building the system already, you know, organic certified. And then we can also use thermal mass uh, to heat the greenhouse. So heating the thermal mass of the water is a lot less energy, even if we have to rely on a tankless water heater as a backup. Um, but mainly we use solar water heating these days to heat the water and maintain temperature. But if the water is 72, 73 degrees in the, in the reservoirs and the fish tanks and the beds, that's, you know, that amount of thermal mass coming off of all those beds heats that greenhouse up just fine. Um, and then, you know, along with a little bit of solar gain, your, your gravy along, and then we stack that with geothermal. We find our climate control costs of aquaponics are around 40% on average compared to a, a similar size uh, soil growth. And it mostly just has to do with how many cloudy days you have where that solar heating isn't going to give you any solar gain, or you're going to have to rely on, you know, natural gas or propane. Much, much more cost effective. And then the last thing that's great about aquaponics is that you have a lot of base humidity. So your humidity is going to be, you know, 60 to 80%, which is exactly where you want it to be for proper VPD. Uh, remember, the optimal growth temperature for cannabis is 85 to 88 degrees on the leaf surface temperature, depending on varietal. So you want to make sure you have that leaf surface temperature. That's why those thermal laser guns are great. Uh, and then you want to make sure that you have around 80% humidity uh, at that leaf surface temperature and that is going to give you the optimal respiration rate for those stomata on those leaves and really get that plant to grow at its fastest possible rate which is easily achievable with aquaponics the only downside is is that 
you need to make sure you have a dehumidifier that'll come on at nighttime as the temperatures come down that you can, you know, make sure that you're bringing the humidity down as well so you don't, you know, deal with any issues. But as long as you're doing those things, it's not too bad. Interesting. So the system, you use a dehumidifier. Is it within a greenhouse? Yep. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So it's completely self-contained and then you bring the humidity down when the temperature goes down to prevent mold and things like that. Yeah. And the reason why, why we do most of these in greenhouses these days is just for biosecurity. You know, I can't predict who's, you know, overspraying their crops with the neighbors and stuff. I don't know about pollen. There could be a hemp grower. There could be a really excited cannabis grower that's really excited to grow cannabis for the first time now that's legal in wherever the state they're in and plant a bunch of plants and not understand what a male looks like until it's way too late. That happens more often than you think. Uh, especially with, you know, really excited newbie growers that are trying to hide a plant in the back corner of the garden and just have never seen a fiend. They've never grown before, so they don't know a male. They think it's just going to turn into buds eventually. Um, and that can be a problem as well. Gotcha. That'll ruin your whole crop. Yep. I think it's totally interesting what you're doing, uh, what kind of people you're working with, and um, where you're headed. Sure, yeah. So we're working on a couple of different projects, but most of the stuff these days is um, working on helping get uh, other aquaponic cannabis companies set up and rolling uh, with proper IPM and proper nutrient protocols. Um, there's a lot of other aquaponics companies that are putting out some pretty outrageously low numbers for nutrients, and they don't understand the, the demand of the cannabis plant and what that translates into in the tissue and what it takes to actually get proper yields and proper trichome expression and you know how to actually get potent stuff. I've done probably you know, without boasting, but probably more runs uh, than most people alive uh, with aquaponic cannabis. It really just comes down to just, it, it's a lot of fun. So a lot of my day-to-day -day is just design, doing design work, you know, doing a lot of SketchUp, um, laying out the different farms, and then uh, writing up, I have kind of a template for, for SOPs and stuff, but helping people make sure they have the right um, management. I've been really moving with pest management towards beneficial insects lately. Awesome. Especially the last year and a half, uh, especially after going to a couple of seminars on hash and how much um, some of those essential oils can contaminate your gland heads a lot more than I had realized. So about a year and a half ago, um, started reading all my SOPs for all my IPM to be uh, completely beneficial insect based and uh, I haven't really had too many issues. Interesting. So beneficial insects, you said that uh, you were using, so you were using essential oils to kill them before, but that was contaminating the product. Well, it wasn't necessarily contaminating the product. Like for instance, my and I still use this for plants and veg, but there's some a couple of lemongrass oil products. They're just lemongrass oil, excuse me, lemongrass oil and castor oil that are um, really, really good for uh, mites especially, but it's just a suffocant that works well, but it's just lemony, you know, it's nothing uh -huh. not already on the plants. So Right, you don't want that on your flowers, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. But you know, for veg it's no big deal. And then you know, also has to be mildly acidic, but that's something that, you know, I try to, I'll use it maybe as a, you know, for some reason I'm seeing mites that came in from, I don't know, I, since I switched to dipping the plants with Self Oil X, uh, thanks to uh, uh, Suzanne Wainwright Evans, she's yes. an awesome guru on the, thanks to her knowledge uh, two years ago, teaching me about the Self Oil X, I really haven't had too many issues with mites, you know, especially from clones anymore. If something comes in infected, I'll, I'll give it a really good, you know, gassing with CO2, release some beneficials, especially spider mites. They're easy enough with Persimilis or some other people like Californicus, depending on what you're doing. But Persimilis is really good. How cool. Or anything else for that. But She's so smart. She was nice enough to do a, a podcast 
show about six months ago with me. So some of the other stuff that I, I've been working on is the how to apply um, things like Korean natural farming techniques and how can we further increase the microbiome and how can we try to do IMOs, you know, something equivalent to an IMO for aquatic biomes. And that's been something I've been doing experimentation with, with you know, trying to take different sponges or a couple of other, you know, different types of medium uh, in aquatic environments to try and get some different mineral mineralizing microbes from, you know, natural sources and then, uh-huh. you know, looking at them and experimenting with those. So that's been something fun I've been working on the last couple of months. In particular, I worked, helped uh, work with a bunch of stuff with lactobacillus fermentation. The Kentucky State is going to release, uh, University of Kentucky State is going to release this cool study later this year on lactobacillus in aquaponics and how not only can it reduce fish waste in the system, and also makes the fish grow 15% faster on average and the plants grow 18% faster on average. So, uh, and it also uh, can eliminate a lot of, um, you know, gram negative pathogens that could potentially make people sick. So it's kind of a grand slam as far as uh, benefits to the system. So anyone doing organic hydro or, or, you know, aquaponics really should look into uh, Chris Trump's videos on lactobacillus. And um, I'm going to have some kind of shortcut videos uh, I've been working on. I was talking about it actually at the conference in in Michigan. There's a, a way you can kind of shortcut making your lab. So instead of waiting all the time it takes quite a quite a while like two weeks or whatever to do traditional labs that's a really long time for a commercial you know facility to dedicate that much square footage so you don't you know don't really want to do that so i figured out a way to speed it all up so uh, you can take four cups of uh, brown sugar and four gallons of milk about uh, half a cup of kefir grains so go to your local eastern european store and get um, a Russian store and get some kefir, order some kefir uh, online, uh-huh. Amazon or whatever. Try to get a couple different sources if you can to get a couple different different types of kefir microbes. And then put that in there. And you can actually use the kefir uh, in place of the labs as a much faster version as far as like commercial setting or for cannabis growers that just don't want to wait that long. Um, they need it in a couple of days because they got problems or they need to use it to treat something. You know, that's, that's the way to do it. The other thing I've noticed as well with uh, using lactobacillus and aquaponics is that especially if you're doing something uh, like um, bluegill, for instance, bluegill tend to beat on each other a bit. They'll, they'll rip each other's fins up a little bit and nip at each oh. other. Not to the point where they're going to kill each other, but sometimes it can lead to fin rot or secondary infections that we've noticed. When you treat the fish with that, uh, with the lactobacillus, it tends to make kind of make sure that they don't end up getting secondary infections uh, anywhere near as often. So it seems like that's great. For certain species, really could be uh, really critical. It sounds like there, so there really is like this direct overlap with Korean natural farming. Exactly, and this just goes back to show you know, hey, this is you know just an aquatic food web versus a terrestrial food web. You know, there's there's no difference. Yeah, you know, one is in water, one's in soil, but people need to stop thinking of of them as super different kinds of things. That's why it's really goofy to me when people are like, aquaponics isn't shouldn't be certified organic. And it's like, really? Because we have more biodiversity than than a soil, most soil systems in terms of number of different species. And we can mineralize nutrients just the same way using all our, all just microbial methods. So where's what's the difference? It's, it, Maybe there it's is no difference. the only difference would be that it's a controlled environment. So you know it's actually organic. Or, or, you know, say I have a property that, you know, we're trying to remediate a property and grow organic vegetables or organic plants there. 
as long as I know that, you know, I can seal the floor so that we're not getting contaminated dust or something like that. And we can drop one of these systems in and right away be an organic certified place, which I think that's part of the other reason why they get upset is they're like, well, you guys can be certified really quickly and we have to wait four years. And it's like, well, that's fine, but maybe you should talk about why it is that you guys need to do four years and maybe just work out on the other side of it and make it more reasonable on your end instead of, you know, coming down on us. Oh, personal gripe. Yeah, well, so I guess one thing that came up as a question when you're talking about the, you know, the higher nutrients that are needed for cannabis, uh, how does that affect sure. the fish? How does that work? And how, what is the protocol there? Sure. So for most of our nutrients, if we're going to dose anything like potassium would be kind of the first one that comes to mind. It's mostly just potassium. You have to really worry about killing the fish easily. We dose to the upper half of the soil zone. So We'll actually, when we top water that soil zone uh -huh. that we talked about in the dual root zone pot, we can supplement without having to affect the fish. And, and that really solves most of our issues as far as that, you know, being able to supplement with, you know, other things uh, and boosting, you know, things for flour and things like that because it lots more control. Not to mention I can do individual different cultivars in the same, same row and have radically different nutrient inputs simply by watering those plants differently. Uh, when I supplemental feed. So it gives you a lot more control. You know, I can dose the water, you know, up to fish tolerant levels in the system. Uh, things like silica. Uh, silica is a big thing that people don't really talk about enough in aquaponics or in a lot of lesser extent cannabis as well that really helps with heat resistance, cold resistance, fungal resistance, you know, making the plant stronger, you know, to handle uh -huh. more wind and things like that increases yields, you know, so it's just goofy. It makes for lettuce and other aquaponic people, it makes it, uh, your, your product last longer in the fridge. It doesn't rot quite so quick. So that's really interesting. And then we can also make a, in our soil layer, we can do a time release nutrient, um, mix, you know, so I want, I want to put something like dolomite or, you know, whatever super soil mix that you already like for your soil growing, you can do that. And then you can also supplemental feed. So if I want to water stuff in i'm going to figure out the saturation rate for that soil layer and that size pot reduce that water volume in half and then i can add whatever supplemental nutrients i want to that and now i can water that into my soil zone so i can supplement that way or i can change up the fish feed so more carnivorous plants tend to produce more protein more herbivorous plants uh, uh, fish i'm sorry um produce more um uh, phosphorus. So, um, you know, you, you want to generally, if you're going to do a bigger scale operation, you would have more carnivorous fish in your veg and a little bit more herbivorous or omnivorous fish like paku or koi in your um, flowering systems, just in terms of waste output. And even changing their diet up quite a bit can give you, you know, quite a big difference in their nutrients. Uh, depending on our operations uh, and where we're running, some of the places where now we're doing uh, uh, dubia and hissing cockroaches and uh, worms and black soldier flies as a primary protein source. And we're basically feeding them off of fan leaves wow. uh, and stalks. So you're putting those insects in a separate system, feeding them the stalks, yeah. and then dropping them into the water for the fish. Yeah, we're freezing them first so that they're not running around the grow and then feeding them. Yes. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, we you know we had a lot of success doing that. And again, we're just now we're really recycling our nutrient inputs. You know, stuff coming right out the systems, going right back in, and we're closing those loops and making it you know, even as small of an impact as we can. So we you know on the as far as outside resources go, and trying to get that down to you know as low as possible. Again, the old, the biggest challenge we have with aquaponics is just the oxidation of iron, and you know relying on DTPA iron is kind of the only option for that. But as far as being able to balance it. Now, some people will recommend EDHA and some of the others. The problem is, is that 
they don't work with testers. Um, if you go and you use those, it's fine for hydro when you're dumping your res, but in aquaponics, it'll stain your water. And now I can't use any of my refract, a lot of the different, like the HANA meters and some of the other uh, color meter, color meters um, that actually look at the color of the water. It really screws them up. So uh, it makes it so you're kind of flying blind after that. I'd much rather have, you know, actually data on what's going on. Definitely. Well, and it seems like the more I learn about aquaponics and definitely the people involved in aquaponics, that you just have a completely holistic mindset, whereas people who are interested in hydroponics more so or predominantly, at least in the cannabis industry, they're, they're not thinking about microbes at all. It seems like they only have an understanding of the chemistry. I like to explain this to people in that, okay, so if I'm a hydroponic system, traditional hydroponic system is sterile. You have, uh, in this analogy, we're going to say that the chef in this analogy is going to be the nutrient. The customer is going to be the plant. Now, um, if I have a chef and he's in a food truck, he can only do maybe five or 10 customers, maybe, you know, five to seven customers every 10 to 15 minutes, depending on what he's making. Uh, now, if I take that same chef and I put him in a restaurant and he has prep chef, sous chef, you know, hostess, waitresses, waiters, you know, bartender, you know, bus boys, you know, cleaning crew, the whole nine. Now he can serve, you know, a few hundred people, maybe not, you know, 25 or 30 people in that same 15 to 20 minutes. You know what I mean? So, this, that's the role of the microbes. So the microbes would be like the rest, the restaurant workers making that nutrient, you know, a lot more efficient and getting to the, the customers, which are the plants. Um, whereas in a traditional hydro system, you just need a lot more food trucks, which is why they need a lot more nutrients, um, higher PPMs, because they're not getting that efficiency into uh, delivering it to the plant. Yeah. Well, so why is it that it's so big? I mean, it seems, is it just because of our culture, you know, the the consumerism and having products that's just so appealing to people and being able to just go into a store and buy what you need. It's the ease of it. And then, I mean, a lot of it had to do with the fact that the DuPont company and some of the other big companies after World War II that had built, they were making all kinds of explosives. And then they realized they could remonetize a lot of the similar industrial processes to make fertilizers. And then they started just dumping the fertilizers all over the country. And then basically you have the consolidation of the fertilizer companies with the seed production companies that are now, you know, hand in hand, you know, they're pushing one without the other. Like, do you even know, for instance, like the story of glyphosate or glyphosate, you know what that was originally developed for? It wasn't an herbicide. It was an engine degreaser. Wow. They just happened to realize that it was a really good at killing plants. That's horrifying. And then do you know where the GMO glyphosate resistant plants came from? That would be Monsanto, right? Yeah, but do you know how it is that they found a gene that would tolerate it? No, I don't. It was from a weed that didn't die for, I believe it was Jimson weed, if memory serves me right. So it was a weed that just evolved a resistance to it very rapidly. They took the gene out of that, put it in corn, put it in soy, and put it in all these other things to make it break down the chelation of the glyphosate. Because the glyphosate chelates minerals so that the plant can't use them, the microbes can't use them. But they're finding that lactobacillus also seems to do a quite a number on, on fields that have been overspread with glyphosate. I believe it was Alan from uh, Grokashi was posting an article on that this past week on that study. Wow, I'm going to have to look so, that up because I'm obviously really interested in remediation. And I mean, it could even happen. I, You know, the connection of our body and the soil. So our entire environment, everybody is contaminated with glycosate. So or glycosate, I can't even say it. Um, but I mean, so maybe that's something that we all need to be taking 
as a supplement too. Yeah, and then on top of that, Alan and, and Kevin were also the guys that discovered the um, uh, Kevin Jodry. Uh, Kevin Jodry was just talking about at the regenerative conference about how um, they figured out using the grow boxes with the, the lactobacillus was helping with virus suppression quite a bit as well for people running into viral issues, trying to get clean cuts. They were able to kind of do like a ghetto version of cleaning up the cuts that way. Wow. Um, he talks about that in a couple of his talks recently. So. I'll have to check that out. It's so interesting where we're at with sustainability. I'm really interested to see what's happening, but I think we're the whole farming culture will have to go natural. Maybe Monsanto has something else in store, like genetically modifying things in a much more dramatic way. Well, the only one I've seen that really I thought was any kind of interesting was there was a, and I don't think it was months. Well, Monsanto is now bare. But uh, I don't think it was them. It was some other company, and they changed the gene in corn, and they made the photosynthesis 40% more efficient. Mm. That was interesting, and it was just changing the expression of a gene. They didn't add a new gene or anything like that. They just changed the, the order in which they express, which I thought was very interesting. But that was the only one. So, oh, I'm, I'm glad you also brought up the topic of like synthetic stuff, so GMO, so like things like yeast and some of these algaes and stuff they're trying to do cannabinoids and terpenes from. You could probably get by with cannabinoids, but cannabinoids, to make a cannabinoid, you have to make the terpenes and a bunch of other things first, and that gets kind of tricky. But it's fine, you know, say you have a bunch of CBGA, and you can make all these different terpenes and all these different cannabinoids. The problem is, depending on what ratios you balance them at, a lot of these things will precipitate, emulsify, precipitate, uh, you know, turn into all different types of different, you know, get solid, turn to glass, suddenly change color. You know, it's not a predictable, you can't just pour vials in and, and get a, you know, solution. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is, is that, you know, especially with the ability very soon to patent cultivars and things like that, you know, if you're trying to knock off somebody's strain with a, by doing it with GMO inputs, you know, that's copyright territory because you're copying their cultivar or the chemovar. So, no, it's going to be really weird and interesting to see how the lawyers uh, end up carving this whole thing up. That's for sure. And so I think what you're starting to talk about, too, is like, so there's synthetic ways to get cannabinoids and this whole movement with CBD. Mm-hmm. Where do you think that's going? CBD is going to be in everything. CBD is going to be in bread and beverages and everything like that soon, there's, once the FDA calms down. And do you think that it really does have, I mean, whether it comes, so they're not getting it from cannabis anymore right so well it is from cannabis it's just from non-thc varietals and i think you're going to see that sooner than later they're finally going to drop the whole low thc thing and let people just grow full full plants and then do extract and split it up afterwards that's what i'm hoping for at least it'll be probably five or ten years but i'm hoping that'll happen one day except they'll just drop it with the whole 0.3 percent maybe i'm a dreamer but I think it'll happen. It makes sense. No, but I i mean, obviously it's from cannabis, but isn't there a different method of getting it now? Like they're finding, can you talk about that a little bit? Like the, in a, I don't know what they're doing exactly. I just saw something on that. You mean as far as extracting the C- CBD? Well, not from, I, I thought that they were making CBD out of something else. Like they were. Yeah. So they have some algaes and some yeasts. So that's what I was referring to earlier. But even if you're going to make all these things, blending them is going to take a lot of experimentation. And even people that do added terps now to carts know 
you know, anyone that's actually done it to any scale and, and different dealt with a bunch of different varietals will know right away that you can't just go mixing them willy nilly. You'll end up with really, you know, weird stuff that'll do all kinds of weird things, separate. And like I said, you know, crystallize or cause things to precipitate out or. Yeah. It definitely sounds like something that will only happen in a lab. Yeah. Or at least the formulations, you know. And I mean, maybe that is the future if it's something that they're able to do. Those bigger companies can do that. That's coming. They're going to require ISO certified labs for all extraction here and all edibles and, and all that here in the very near future. CBD, like you said, it's going to be in everything. Do you really feel that it has all the benefits that people say it has? I think that it definitely has. It, it helps a lot of people with pain and inflammation. And it has, you know, definitely helps with seizures and some other stuff. But with what they're finding now is, is that it's not just CBD. It's actually CBD plus or XYZ cannabinoid plus that, that terpene profile. Some of the other stuff that's going to be coming out here in the next year is, you know, people are working on some of the alcohol bonded cannabinoids and some of the other funkier cannabinoids. Um, and then like uh, MC West, I think it was, it was MC West or Bubble Man at the Regenerative Conference in, in Vancouver was talking about how they just discovered cannabinoids that are only found in the presence of powdery mildew or fusarium. Amazing. Or, you know, root rot, or, you know, they discover that there's there's unique cannabinoids that no one's even studied. So uh, I think with, with the more diverse um, extraction methods and more diverse pharmaceutical stuff coming in and, and hitting it with some of the ways that they've done other plants and things for their extractions and things, it's, you're going to see more medical compounds. And then now people discovering ones in dirty plants, that's going to be a whole other frontier to discover, you know, who knows? That, that, that totally changes the number of cannabinoids that we, you know, want to need to consider that are on the plant. And again, Absolutely. why is there unique cannabinoids there? Because the plant's making a terpene to try and get fend off the powdery mildew, yeah, or react to it, so it's making a new cannabinoid because it, it's terpene to phenol ratio for that, you know, or that with other terpenes is, is hit that level where it's not making a cannabinoid. Yeah, it seems like having a diversity would be so much better for us. Exactly, but it just goes to show that the more diversity, you know, that's why aquaponics works so well, with, especially with you know making really potent stuff. Makes sense. Some of our total terpenes on some of our tests are pretty ludicrous. <laughs> really? Like, what's yeah. the capacity of, of the plant? Like, what is the record or what, what are people, like, seeking? I, I don't know, actually, what the record is for terps. I'd have to look it up. But we've had some pretty pretty high stuff, you know, 4 or 5%, 6% terps on some of our streams. I also have a podcast that's called Growing with Fishes. Um, we're on uh, Potent Ponics YouTube channel every Tuesday and Thursday at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Real similar to your podcast, we try to get a different interesting people on and pick their brains. Most of our interviews are, I would say, an hour and a half to two hours long. Talk about our own grows. There's a lot of different guys on the podcast that have aquaponic cannabis grows. A lot of the guys, almost every episode, at least one of the guys, give a, a grow tour of what they got going on in the garden. We're asking questions right on the spot. So if you're trying to learn more about aquaponic cannabis, definitely check out the first first 16 or so episodes and then uh, you know whichever ones strike your fancy. That's so awesome. Thank you so much, Steve. 